Welcome to uh, JRNyquist.com podcast for Tuesday, I believe it is November 25th, and with me is Jan Lemprecht from South Africa. He has a uh, website, AfricanCrisis.org, isn't that right, Jan? Yes, and, yes, uh, AfricanCrisis.org and AfricanCrisis.co.za. Uh, and of course the dark continent is getting ever darker, in fact it's a darker shade of red nowadays, not just in terms of the bloodshed, but the communists that have taken over that area of the world. So what's what's the latest what's the latest happening over there on the dark continent? Hi there, Jeff. Um, the most interesting thing is you remember last week we spoke about the Eastern and Western communists, mm-hmm. about the two factions of the ANC. And uh, I thought I'd just mention this week that, that a friend of mine in Durban sent me an sent me an email with a news item. It was about ever since these guys tried to, ever, ever since these, shall we call them the Western communists, tried to break away and form their own political party that is somewhat more moderate than, than the hardcore guys, um, they have come under quite a lot of attack. And it is quite common nowadays for these guys to, every move that they make, the Eastern Communists or the ANC are on their case like you cannot believe. Uh, for example, when those guys wanted to just choose the name for their party, they they registered with a name, and no sooner had they registered it than the ANC was taking them to court and hammering them over the name and claiming that, that the name in some way infringes on or steals from the history of the ANC, I think those guys have had about four or five name changes just in the last few weeks. Mm -hmm. But the most, uh, but the most vicious is whenever these guys have a rally and they try to, um, they try to get, get the, get their supporters together and they have a bit of a meeting and they just discuss their political views. The ANC is there immediately with a bunch of supporters and they come and they, they walk straight into the meeting, they break it up, they sing songs, they cause chaos. Uh, what happened in Durban was about 50 of these breakaway guys were having a meeting and 200 ANC arrived on the scene and started breaking it up and just causing chaos. So it just goes to show, like I was saying, that we are going to see one of the most vicious um, election campaigns in the history of South Africa. And they've also said that the election date will be March 25th. So they've actually moved it forward by about a month from what they normally have. Hmm. So that will give you some idea of um, just the beginnings of how these guys are going to start climbing into each other. What's the logic of moving the but election up a month? It may be that they don't want to give this other party time to settle down. Um, because this party is now forming up and trying to create structures out of nothing. Um, and it looks like every single thing these guys are doing, the ANC is trying to harass them every inch of the way. It's very Mugabe-like in, in its approach. And um, the, I actually saw a newspaper headline the one day where, where the, the leader of Kosatu said something like, we will obliterate uh, this new party. The new party is called COPE. It stands for Congress of the People. And those words, Congress of the People, the ANC is taking them to court for using those words as well. 
They're not giving them a second's rest. That's outrageous. They really, yeah, that is real harassment. You won't even let them give it a name because they're yes, using the yes. people's name or something. It's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. The ANC is just finding any excuse they can find to hammer them. Now, um, th- among the other questions that I have in mind are, for example, the ANC has got 67% of the vote. So 67% is two-thirds, and it allows them to also change the Constitution at will. But if you look at all the various um, analyses that have been done of the support that these other guys could have, these other guys probably have the support of one-third of the people in the ANC. In fact, Jeff, the ANC's got 300 seats in Parliament and they have been saying that they expect a hundred members of parliament to defect to the new party. But now it brings, it brings with it some interesting mathematics. And it goes like this. If these other guys can knock off a third of the ANC's power, then a third of uh, 67% is about 22%. That would actually bring the ANC to under 50%. And this is going to make for some very interesting politics. I'm even sitting and, and considering whether the ANC will not only engage in the greatest election cheating that we've ever seen in this country, but I've also wondered to myself if the ANC, if by some chance the ANC were to, if these guys were able to get the ANC to under 50%. I ask myself whether the ANC wouldn't cling to power illegally. The way Mugabe, the the way Mugabe is clinging to power in Zimbabwe. Absolutely. I mean, Jeff, Jeff, when they did analyses of the election in Zimbabwe on the March, on March 29th, you know, it's over, it's more than 230 days or something since Mugabe lost that election. Um, independent, there were people who said that, um, the MDC won 57% of the vote. Jeff, between that time and now, the MDC has still not taken control. They've still not convened a parliament. The MDC still has got no no seats in cabinet. There's actually no functioning government in Zimbabwe at the moment. And, uh, you know, when the MDC won in March, there were lots of MDC people who said, oh, well, it's over. Mugabe's out. He's gone. Not so, my friend. Not so. Even Even... Uh, probably the most shocking thing I heard today was that um, someone sent me a an interview that somebody did with the American ambassador to Zimbabwe, who happens to be an African-American. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems as though your, your government always sends African-Americans to Africa, uh, whatever, anyway. And, and this guy was then saying that um, Robert Mugabe is actually in a stronger position than he was a year ago. And he went on to say that Robert Mugabe has a system of payoffs and loyalty and buying the the loyalty of the senior people in the army and the government and so forth. But I was so disgusted that he that he reckoned that Mugabe is in a stronger position than a year ago because uh, you know, it just goes back to proving what you and I have discussed all along for all these years is that if you want to drive these people out, you've got to be tough with them. Coming along with all this soft, wishy-washy liberalism 
and just making excuses for them all the time gives them the chance to survive. Yeah, it definitely does. And then, and of course, these guys, you know, a guy who was willing to use uh, North Korean troops in his country to keep order is pretty darn ruthless. Well, those troops and what they did were absolutely brutality of the highest order. I mean, they were they were murdering women and children and throwing people down mine shafts. They were wiping out entire villages. And that was now at the time of the genocide. But, I mean, even now the political violence continues. And Mugabe plays so many games. You know, he's such – he's very practiced. And, and I'll give Mugabe his due. He – he is obviously a keen observer of how the West works, and I think, I think President Mbeki also was. These guys do understand the weaknesses of the West, and they know that if they just hide certain facts from the West, then the West will leave them alone. Yeah, they seem to, and they and seem, and they sometimes even give them money or assistance or what have you, and certainly tolerance. Um, the Mugabe yes. regime is... Well, these guys... Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, the Mugabe regime, of course, being a Maoist communist regime, right, uh, is, is something that's supposed to be, you know, communism is supposed to be dead. It's not supposed to be alive. Of course, he's not the only communist in Africa who's doing well and fighting the good fight, so to speak. They're all, they're all yes. out there. They're all out there, uh, advancing the Marxist-Leninist cause or the Maoist cause. Um, and the United States seems to think it's business as usual with these people. And it's, uh, if they think for a minute that the white supremacist government in Rhodesia was worse than this guy, they must be completely crazy. No. When, when, how, how many Jeff, people you, were dying when the whites were in charge of, of, of Zimbabwe, Rhodesia? No. It was nothing like this at all. In fact, in fact, a, a couple of years back, there was a black guy who wrote an article. He was a black man who'd been, I think it, I'm not sure if it was Edgar Takere or somebody else, but it was a black guy who had been imprisoned by Ian Smith during the days of white rule. And the same black guy was also later imprisoned by Mugabe. And he wrote this article where he said that when he was imprisoned by the whites, he was treated better and more humanely than when he was imprisoned by Mugabe. And that was out of the mouth of a black man. Uh, but And you cannot even begin to compare the suffering and the collapse of the country uh, now to to what it was then. I mean, back then the country was prospering. I mean, at the height of the war, there was 10% growth in GDP. If you look at Zimbabwe now, I think inflation, I think they now talk about inflation by the minute. Inflation is in the hundreds of millions of percent. In fact, things are so bad that hospitals have closed down. Um, there are now, probably for the first time ever in that country, huge outbreaks of cholera. Water supplies are unreliable. Electricity supplies are unreliable. The whole country, the, the currency no longer functions. They are using South African rands and U.S. dollars. That is their currency. So you just can't compare it, Jeff. It's it's stunning. It's like Atlas Shrugged, you know. It's like that book by Ayn Rand when the when these uh, socialist secondhanders take over a country, everything ceases to function. Yeah. It just doesn't work anymore. Yes, 
And uh, that's and, what these is. This is like a barbarian incursion, you know. If you read about the late Roman Empire, you, the barbarians get inside and they break down the infrastructure and they start to to interfere with trade and their looting and their raiding causes the the economy to collapse. Well, you got the exact same phenomenon here, don't you? Yes, Jeff. And you know what? The the looting also becomes part of the system, because, for example, Mugabe gives um, foreign currency. Uh, he clamps down on foreign currency and he only gives foreign currency to certain people who mostly are his henchmen. And then those guys, uh, get forex and they actually make, they make profits of something like 10,000% on transactions. So the system becomes a criminal system. Hmm. Yeah, it and it it becomes a system of um, sort of thugs from the dark ages who've somehow taken control. It's it's very odd that the Western world would allow an area that it had control over at one time that was being developed under Europe and uh, under European auspices to sink like this back into you know the jungle or in in into the whatever kind of terrain it is over there sink back into the wilderness with the people completely lost. You know, Jeff, I heard something interesting the one day. I'm not sure if it was Eben Barlow who mentioned it. I think Eben Barlow uh, of Executive Outcomes mentioned it in his book Against All Odds. But he told of an experience he had where at one time somebody from French intelligence contacted him and they actually asked him to find out in certain African countries which people are the most corruptible. And he actually refused. But I sat back and thought about it afterwards, and I think that part of the explanation is that I have often wondered if if the Western world disliked the whites in Africa because the whites in Africa were quite cheeky. And the whites in Africa had their own views, whether they were Afrikaners or Rhodesians. And whether the West doesn't actually prefer dealing with blacks who are corruptible and easier to control. You just go and pay the guy a few pennies and you buy him off and he gives you whatever whatever you want. So if it is... Um, oil or, or minerals or whatever because look at look at even like the angolan regime the the uh what's it the mpla mm-hmm. um those guys are actually hardcore communists and yet now they trade with the american government and they're a major supplier of oil to your country and yet not too long ago your country was even funding savimbi who was the opposition to them. But when Savimbi lost, they just, they had no problem switching over to supporting the communists, the very people they had fought against. Hmm. You know, your country does some strange things. Did I ever tell you about my discussion with P.W. Buerta in Angola? No, no, you never did. What, uh, now of course maybe you should explain who, uh, who Mr. Buerta is. P.W. Buerta yeah. is. P.W. Buerta was the, the president of South Africa in the 1980s, and he actually, his, his career in South African politics was about 48 years long. And during that time, he was also the Minister of Defense. 
and he was very anti-communist. And um, I actually visited him a couple of weeks prior to his passing away. And I chatted to him at his home, and uh, we, we talked about Angola, and he told me an interesting thing. He said to me that uh, in his meetings uh, with Henry Kissinger, um, he said that, that a plan evolved, and the plan, the plan that Henry Kissinger was happy to strike with him was the following. The plan was that since the Russians and Cubans were assisting um, the communist government in Angola, the plan was that South Africa and America would assist their opposition, which was UNITA. And what Henry Kissinger promised him was that if the South Africans took care of the land battle and fought uh, on the territory of Angola and drove back the communists uh, while assisting UNITA, then the American government would see to it that the harbors of Angola were mined so that the Russians couldn't bring in their ships with arms. And he said that afterwards, when Kissinger went back to America, the U.S. Congress refused to do that, and Kissinger just sort of... um, threw his hands in the air and didn't care, you know, and left it at that. And that is why South Africa ended up fighting, being the only Western country that was really aiding UNITA. And even if you look at the aid that the Americans gave to UNITA, it was a very lukewarm kind of kind of aid. They would give them some arms and then they would leave them alone for several years to just fight it out by themselves. Whereas the Russians and Cubans were much more loyal to the people that they were supporting. They were helping them all the way and, and uh, giving weaponry and, you know, being with them all the time. It was a whole different thing. It, you know, the West, especially America, was fought a really half-hearted war in Angola. It was, pathetic really well it's really like the whole cold war it was a half-hearted war and and angola was sort of the uh, object lesson yes i mean the fact and that you know, the, the fact that the west would embargo south africa or rhodesia when these countries were holding back communism from overwhelming the region which is now the region's overwhelmed in it and millions of people yes. are going to starve to death before this is over. And, of course, we've seen millions die. I think it's millions have died already in Congo and uh, other places in the region where, where the Marxists have taken over. I mean, how many have starved to death or died as a result of the political conditions in, in Zimbabwe now under Mugabe? I mean, That is a number that nobody really knows. It seems as though what's happened every... It seems as though... When Mugabe initially started um, all this trouble, his original intention was to actually kill all the opposition. Um, I have no doubt that he wanted to starve everybody to death. But what has in fact happened is that every time he wants to starve them to death, and and you know every so often they will say there are five million people in Zimbabwe, which is almost half the po- country's population. There's almost 5 million or more than 5 million who are uh, on the verge of starving. Then along comes the United Nations and the World Food Program, and they try and give them food. 
and uh, sometimes Mugabe interferes with that, but they seem to have managed in each case to have fed them. What has actually happened and what keeps Zimbabwe alive is that probably, I would guess, Jeff, that at least a third, if not half of the Zimbabwean population actually lives either temporarily or permanently in South Africa because everywhere here in South Africa there are Zimbabweans all over the show and they either have jobs or they engage in crime and then they get food and they send it up to Zimbabwe. There's That is how Zimbabwe is fed. It's between the World Food Program and the millions who now live here. Most of them live in Johannesburg where I am. Wow, that's uh, that's amazing. So it's so, my goodness, the the living conditions in your country, South Africa, must have really suffered as some kind of deterioration uh, over the years with yes. the collapse of Zimbabwe and the the wars that have happened, and now of course the ANC government, where um, where you have a black black rulers who are connected to the Communist Party and these other tyrants in the area. I mean. Uh, how is day-to-day life? Maybe you could try to explain to Americans. Has the standard of living fallen in South Africa? You know what? When you live in a place like this, you don't really notice it that much. You do see things changing, and then after a while you say, but you know, I remember things being quite different a few years ago. But for when people leave the country and come back after a while, they are the most shocked. The other day I met a South African who'd been living in Australia for four years and he'd come here on business, and he said to me he is completely shocked at how different South Africa looks to what it looked just four years ago. And already, you know, um, we've had some serious infrastructure problems in this last while. Earlier this year, our entire electricity grid was collapsing, and it caused probably the biggest outflow of whites in this country in years. Um, in the first six months of, of 2008, whites were selling their houses and r- fleeing from this country in a way I've never seen in my life. Um, it reminded me so much of Zimbabwe. Um, all over in, in the suburbs where I live, there are houses that are empty because the owners have left the country, but they can't find a buyer for the house but they just leave the country anyway. They don't care. They'll find a buyer another day. And um, all across Johannesburg, you s- traffic lights don't really work like they used to. You can hardly drive 10 kilometers without, coming a- without having at least one traffic light that doesn't work. So you can see the slow deterioration of standards. You can see how the demographics of certain areas change. For example, not far from me is... Uh, is a city called Randburg and Randburg used to be Randburg used to be the place where 20 years ago all the businesses were moving out of Johannesburg CBD they were moving to Randburg Randburg was upper class it was vibrant um, all the best businesses were moving there if you go to Randburg now Randburg is just this black morass of people M- most of those businesses have shut down the whole place looks different. You, um, it's changed completely. Huh. You know, so so you get this. The other thing we get in South Africa is we we get crime due to Zimbabweans, 
And Zimbabweans come here and they also engage in crime. They murder people. They murder whites. They, 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 they engage in some very violent crime. We, we had a, a shootout in Johannesburg about a year or so ago. It was almost a Bonnie and Clyde type of situation where some Zimbabweans robbed a, robbed a supermarket and they were chased by the police into the center of Johannesburg. And they were holed up in this house. And what ensued was a gun battle in which several of the police were shot dead by these Zimbabweans. It was an absolute bloodbath. <clears throat> so that'll give you an idea. We, the countries do take strain from, from the problems up in the north, for sure. Hmm. And South Africa, South Africa's also lost. South Africa's probably lost tens of billions, if not more, of investment that it would have had from foreign countries simply because of the problems in Zimbabwe. And you can't blame people for not wanting to invest here. So the, so the, the, the whole region is messed up badly. I mean, so does, what does the government say? Does it say, oh, well, we're doing good and we're bringing more to the people or we're sorry, sorry for the mess, we're going to clean it up? I mean, what does the government no. say? You know, the government plays all kinds of games. They, they play word games. President Mbeki, for example, invented quiet diplomacy, which basically is just a fancy way of doing nothing. And, and he would just walk around and say, well, you know, he would, he would talk rubbish like this and people would buy it. He would say, you know, we can't use force against Robert Mugabe because it will make him more intransigent. You know, I, I listened, to, I, I listened, I listened to rubbish like that, Jeff. And then I think to myself, imagine if these people had negotiated with Hitler. Oh, yeah. You know, Hitler, Hitler would have ruled the world if he'd had to deal with people like this. Well, they all would have started working for him. Yeah. You know, and, and that is why these, these little regimes are actually tin pot regimes. One Western, one Western diplomat turned around a while back and said that it's probably only 20,000 people who are actually responsible for keeping Robert Mugabe in power. And, uh, yeah, that is probably correct. Probably only 20,000 people, most of them soldiers, are what is keeping him in power. But, uh, Look at look at it. It's been almost it's heading for nine to ten years, and uh, he's nowhere nearer leaving than before. How old is he? He's got to be close to dying, though. I mean, he's ancient, isn't he? He's he's in his eighties. He's probably about eighty-two, eighty-three, eighty-four, somewhere around about there. But he, you know, he gets good doctors. He he, he probably, um, you know, he's wealthy. He's, he's a multimillionaire. He probably gets some of the best medical treatment, uh, that you can get. Uh, so, you know, he could, he could die any time, but I don't think, you know, he could still survive another three or four years, maybe. Hmm. So, many people hoped he would die, and we've been waiting for, for the last eight years for him to die, and he hasn't died. <laughs> but frankly, I don't care. You know what, Jeff? To me, it's all so lame. I find the whole situation so lame and so completely ridiculous. You know, here's this stupid little tin pot dictator. 
if if the Western world had any uh, had any interest in in decency and honesty, you know why why wouldn't they put pressure on to get rid of him? I mean, they got rid of Saddam Hussein. They got People rid of got the rid regime of, and they got rid of apartheid, didn't they? They put pressure on yes. that. Look at look at the kind of sanctions they put they put on the whites. You know, I'm sitting here by my desk. I'm still going to scan this and put it on my website, and I'll send you copies of this. I'm sitting by my desk, and you, and I've got um, fuel rationing coupons from the days of sanctions in Rhodesia. You know, even when you had the money to buy fuel, you weren't allowed to buy it unless you were given coupons because there was so little fuel in the country. Robert Mugabe has never experienced, um, sa- you know, Robert Mugabe and Saddam Hussein and Fidel Castro have never experienced the kind of sanctions that we lived under all the time. Hmm. And I find it so ridiculous. You know, we were supposedly so evil. Um, and... Uh, the force that was used against us was tremendous compared to what these guys get. These guys get treated with such kid gloves. Now, of course, people are hoping in Africa that Obama is going to change this. <laughs> mm. And I'm looking, and uh, I'm doubtful, but uh, this is, you know, do you this think is that, one of uh, the, Do you think that um, it's realistic? I mean, I, I find the Americans so politically correct that... Uh, they would never do anything against a dictator because the color of his skin might not be appropriate. If he was a white dictator, they'd go after him. He'd be out in a jiffy. Yeah, that, they'd probably have bombed him by now. Yeah, but a black um, dictator in Africa, um, very close to being a sacred cow. Well, Jeff, um, there have been people, you know, people here are desperate. And people in Zimbabwe are even more desperate. And those people clutch at straws and they've all been hoping and praying that because Obama is black, supposedly, because he's at least not white, that he will come along and he'll be tougher on Mugabe. And some of them are hoping for this really hard. But since Obama's a leftist, <laughs> and uh, Obama's, I see Obama agrees with Al Gore on global warming, so if that's his set of priorities, then I can't imagine that Mugabe's going to be... Such an important priority. <laughs> no, probably not. Well, well, Jan, we've uh, we've done the thirty minutes. I want to thank you for joining us here on the JRNyquist.com podcast for Tuesday, and um, uh, we'll, we're gonna we, we need to come back to this. Americans need an education on uh, South African politics, and uh, you certainly provide a good one for them. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, I hope it's useful.